The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Timothy three, fourteen through sixteen. Listen. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is God's holy word. From the Associated Press, Dateline, Geneva, Switzerland, In the news this past week or so, scientists at the European Organization for Nuclear Research claim that they are getting quite close to making a positive identification of the heretofore theoretical particle in the world of physics called the Higgs boson particle, named for British physicist Peter Higgs. It's also been nicknamed the God Particle because it's thought that this elusive subatomic speck that we haven't gotten a picture of yet would, if we could prove its existence, show us why matter behaves in some of the ways it does, particularly one of the great mysteries of physics, why does matter have solid mass? Now, I can't tell you why that's still a mystery, but evidently it is. And quantum physicists with great brains are pursuing that, what seems to us a very basic thing. And they say that by verifying the existence of this Higgs particle, scientists will bolster their existing mathematical formulas and theories governing the elemental forces that actually sort of glue creation together and help it behave in certain ways. Why is it, for instance, that we even have gravity? Or why is there such molecular stability among most forms of matter? Why is it the universe and and the world, our planet, is, is so finely balanced that You know, if it tipped one way or another in the content of oxygen versus nitrogen and so on, human life or any life wouldn't exist. But we have this finely balanced mechanism. And they seem to think that the Higgs particle is going to help inform us why this is so. Maybe it will. But what I decry as I read these articles is the idea of materialistic science perhaps 
baying like a group of hounds rather than scientists because they see themselves in pursuit of the possible destruction of the mystery of creation. The mystery that you and I would say, well, all things hold together for a very good reason. We're told about it in Colossians because of Christ. And no particle the physicists are going to discover is going to pull down the explanation of our all-powerful, all-wise, all-sovereign creator God. On this Christmas day, I'm pointing you to just one verse. You're full of cookies and eggnog and all kinds of things, and maybe your brains are sluggish like mine. Maybe we can handle one verse, although I will promise you it's a packed, tight, wonderful verse. 1 Timothy 3.16. It's like a priceless nugget of Scripture truth here. Almost, I think of it as being like a beautiful diamond in a setting where it's not expected because it, 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 Paul almost springs it on us. It isn't that related directly to what he's been talking about, and yet his mind begins to run in the vein of what is the church. And the church, he says, is a repository of God's great and superb truth. And having that in his mind, having spoken in the early part of this chapter about the church in rather mundane ways, what kind of officers should the church have? What are its elders to be like, its deacons? How are they to function? What characteristics should they have? Very practical things. But he's thinking about the church. And he says, how ought we to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God? Paul never thought about the church as buildings. As you probably realize, there were no buildings called mistakenly churches in those times, at least not this early. Believers are the church, living dwellings where God resides by his spirit. And Paul has been saying, well, here is what the officers are to be like, the leaders who will give a mature way of of leading God's people and create a positive environment and a safe and strong place for the truth of God to be preserved and spoken in a reliable way. And that truth is that which tells us that God in Christ has come to dwell among us. We need to be his living containers of that truth, taking it to the world. And we as The ways we mistakenly, of course, use the word church to apply to a building, you might refer to this place where we are, this house that we've filled once we call it a meeting house on the New England model. We know, we hope, that this is a a building founded on a good foundation. Many of us can remember a great big hole dug in the ground here about seven years ago. Doesn't seem possible already. It's been that long. But then they lined the hole with concrete and we watched the steel go up and we watched the pillars that are massed inside these columns. Those aren't wooden columns. They have a a piece of steel inside them holding up the steel that's holding up the balcony, that's holding up the roof. Considerable strength, more than adequate strength for more people than this to safely be here and know the floor won't collapse into the basement or the roof won't come in on us. Although, honestly, singing the hallelujah chorus, I'm not kidding. 
when I was up there at the end of this service, you could feel the floor moving. It wasn't in any danger of coming down, but you, you could feel the vibrations standing up there. That was interesting. Well, Paul says we have this truth, and we are the living container of it. Not any, we as individuals are, but, but collectively as the church. And we have to be faithful, he says, in, in being the pillars and the buttresses that would hold up and contain this truth and make it known. Well, then we would ask, well, what truth are you talking about, Paul? Without us asking the question, he answers it for us, beginning in verse 16. He, he seems to, this was one of those moments where Paul just broke into a, a moment of praise. Many of the scholars believe that verse 16, the main part of it, is actually either a part of a hymn or a creed. Perhaps the creed is a more likely nomination, something that the church was already using, just as Pastor York read to you from Philippians 2. We think likewise. That was a song of praise or a creed perhaps used, which the Spirit of God led to have contained in the Scripture. You see the way it's set up in your Bible's text there. It looks like poetry. It's indented in a different way than the other text, and that is part of the clue that tells us they think this, that it's something Paul knew, something Paul had used in worship, and he brings it in here, led by God's Spirit to just give this burst of praise. Great, indeed, we confess great is the mystery of godliness. He's exclaiming over the mystery of the ages, and in a very brief capsule summary here, looking at the great thing God did in Christ. Three things I'll look at here. First of all, how Christ was revealed, then how he was witnessed to, and how he was received. The first phrase of this, first part of the verse, tells us of the divine revelation of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. I can't remember exactly how many years ago it was. I think about four years ago, my wife and I got on a winter reading kick. We often will read the same things, or one of us will bring an interesting book home, and the other one reads it, and we might talk about it. Somehow we got launched. I think it was because some of these are, are televised on public television. The, the mysteries of the British writer Dame P.D. James, that's her pen name, I think she's the best mystery author alive, although I'm not an expert in that subject. And we, we were not people who really liked mysteries that much. You know, they're often gory. Somebody gets killed. There's blood all over the place. And then, then you have to figure out how and why did this happen. Usually the, the killing happens in the first chapter, and from then on you're, you're trying to track the thing. Well, even though we weren't mystery fans, we found that this writer was so good. I don't hear this as a boastful thing, but I read a lot. And there aren't too many new vocabulary words that I learn anymore at this stage of my life. And yet with P.D. James, I learn new vocabulary left and right. She's so literate. And we enjoyed these books. We enjoyed sort of peeling back the layers of the onion with her until we got to the, the place. Ah, that guy did it. You know, that's how it happened. Maybe you're a mystery fan. Maybe you think when Paul talks here about the great mystery of godliness, he's saying to you that 
He's trying to praise something that's hidden from us. Ironically, it's just the opposite. What he's doing is talking about something that once was hidden, was unknown, but now has been laid out, made known, as if you were at the end of the mystery novel, and you know who the killer is, and and it's all clear, the whole pattern comes before your eyes. It's no longer a secret. That's what Paul's giving praise for here. Completely unlike what existed in his time and in time beyond that into the days of the early church, there were in the Near East many so-called mystery religions. Now, these were always cults, usually started by some individual philosopher or somebody, sometimes tinged with Christianity a little bit. They were usually kind of a mishmash of things. But their common element was there was you know, a body of wisdom or teaching that you had to be an initiate to know. And if you pledged yourself to this teacher or this secret society, whatever it was, you'd learn the secret handshake, I suppose, and and you'd come and you'd be taught the things that the teacher had to teach in whispers because this is privileged information, you know. And then you would know what other people don't know. You'd be one of the initiates. And you could feel a little bit superior if you wanted to to everybody else who didn't know the deep secrets of the universe at this particular mystery religion. Zoroastrianism, if you ever heard of it, was an example, or others like that. Some of the magi may have dabbled in the mystery religions. But we're here to say on this Christmas day, Christianity is no mystery religion. The Apostle Paul is declaring that there was indeed a deep cosmic wonder surrounding the tremendous truth of Christ who preexisted this world and then came into it in the body of a child who became a man. He was saying, yes, that's, that's tremendous. That's astounding that that happened. And, and this once, the whole plan of it was something no mortal mind would ever comprehend, and yet God had planned it. God understood it. God knew the timetable for it, and he brought it to pass. But the point is, in flesh and blood history, he now has displayed it to our view. And so we don't say to others, you know, I've got a secret to tell you. Come join my secret society. We say instead, come learn this great and deep truth that God has made known in our time and space history. Paul uses a word here. He manifested it. He showed it. He displayed it to human view. He brought Jesus into a body that was in every way a real body, 100% real, a voice recognizable like you possibly recognize mine. If you heard Jesus speak and you lived in his time, you would recognize his voice. You would recognize his face. If you grasped his hand, you would know his handshake. And he had that real body, a body that Judas could come and a little act, a little human act of treachery that's given that he came and kissed Jesus in an act of treachery, an act you do with someone who's a real human being. He had that body that could bleed when the whips laid it open. He had a body that could die a gory death on a real wood 
cross with real nails of real iron driven into his sinews. Paul adds something then. There's kind of couplets here if you're looking at this verse. Many see it organized as a sort of three pairs arrangement. Manifested in flesh, vindicated by spirit is the first pair. Seen by angels, proclaimed in the nations is second. Believed on the world and taken up to glory is third. There's this flesh and spirit pairing. A real body, and yet a body energized by, vindicated by the Holy Spirit of God. We've learned a lot about the Holy Spirit as we've been studying Luke in the last weeks, and there's more to come as God gives us opportunity to do that. We've seen how the Spirit came upon Jesus. It said he was filled with a spirit beyond measure of any other person. He was the Son of God, but he had the Spirit to give him wisdom, to energize him, to strengthen him in his humanity against temptation, to give him the power to work miracles. And probably more than anything else, the New Testament points to the Spirit as the dynamo of the resurrection. Romans 1.4 says Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so it's saying here that in a body of true flesh, energized by the power of the Spirit, this one-time mystery of a pre-existent, eternal Jesus has now been manifested, shown, displayed in the earthly visible man, Jesus Christ. Great is the mystery behind this, says Paul, and yet even as he says it, he's saying the mystery has been spread open wide. Well, secondly, in this same verse, it tells of the historic proclamation of or witness to Christ. He was seen by angels and declared among the nations. Angels testified to him, and so did men. Now, I spoke about angels last Sunday, and I know perhaps not all heard what I said about that, but I'm not going to linger over them too much this morning. That's just to remind you, of course, that we have these wonderful straightforward, factual testimonies by a man of science, Luke, and, and by Matthew, the, the tax collector, men of solid facts who talked about otherworldly beings, who prophesied and spoke and testified about who Christ was. We wonder if there was some particular angel sighting or something that Paul had in mind or this this snippet of a creed had in mind. It's probably not possible to answer that, but some have speculated that he was thinking about Acts 1, the ascension, where the apostles saw Christ return to his heavenly glory, and it says there were two men there in white robes who said that they should expect to see him back again the same way. After his ascension, Jesus was declared or witnessed to or preached about by human beings among many nations. And that's the theme of Acts, if you know the book of Acts. The whole idea that the gospel was going out, fanning out in all directions, and and being told to people everywhere, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as the testimony went out, it was testimony to the resurrection, given by witnesses, people who could say, look, I I could refer you to those who saw these things. The apostles themselves were called witnesses 
of the resurrection. And so that testimony goes on this Christmas day and forward from here in world history. It's not done. It's not nearly done. The task of proclaiming and testifying to Jesus Christ to the many nations. You know, there's a sense in which we think of Christmas with so much sentimentality and and with family in mind that we think, oh, this wonderful holiday, it's just full of all warm things, and I just kind of like to get my arms around it and and hug it and, and hug Christmas and say, oh, how great it is. But yet the miracle of of Christmas is something that gives birth to a message that we don't just sit here and selfishly say, isn't it great? We go and we tell. It has an outward compulsion to it that causes us to say the world needs to know this. The follow-up of Christmas and the cross is world evangelism, telling what God has done in this one time great mystery. You could say, if you wish, that the angels were the first missionaries in the world. They were the first ones to come and tell us this thing was coming, and now it's here. And then the apostles were the next missionaries, and the implication is clear that we are to follow them, to go and tell all the nations what God is doing, what has been revealed to us, Christ incarnate in flesh, Christ crucified for us as a sin offering, Christ risen in power, Christ coming again in glory. Your Christmas needs to have an outward look. As you say, this is a message that still needs to be testified to and proclaimed among the nations. Well, thirdly, I've mentioned Christmas as a divine revelation of Christ, and secondly, as a proclamation witnessing to him. But thirdly, in this text comes what we might call the decisive reception of Christ. He was believed on in the world and then taken to glory. You know how John, for example, the great gospel of faith and belief, John tells us in chapter 20, after having spun the entire eyewitness testimony of his experience of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, in chapter 20 he tells of running to the tomb, the empty tomb with Peter, looking in, seeing the grave clothes laying there as if somebody had just stepped out of them, and it says he saw and he believed. What an epic moment that was for John who wrote that gospel. Mary Magdalene, practically beside him that morning of Easter, running from the tomb, having spoken to Christ, who she didn't at first recognize, and then did, and she ran to tell, I have seen the Lord. And then that marvelous story not a story, a fact, of Peter preaching at Pentecost there in Jerusalem to many people who knew all about Jesus and his history and so on, and Peter began to declare that this was the Christ, and they had put him to death, and people were stricken in their hearts, said, what should we do? Peter said, believe on him, repent of your sins, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And 3,000 of them in one day believed You know that ever since that Easter morning, only God could track this, but I think we'd be safe to say that there's probably not been a single day since that day of Pentecost until today when someone, somewhere, man, woman, or child, in some nation of the world has not believed 
on Jesus Christ for the first time. Is that a great thing to think about? One of you looking at me right now had told me about someone they know, a neighbor, who believed and came to an end of herself just last week and said, Jesus needs to be my Lord. I fall down before him. I believe. We rejoice as Christians in that. And that's a continuing dynamic of the Christian faith. One after another after another, hearing the great testimony of this mystery become flesh, Christ offering himself for us, going to the cross, rising again, promising to return in glory. We believe, and we unite in a witness and pray that many more would believe too. Well, the last phrase about this reception of Christ here is that he was taken up in glory. You see the symmetry of this verse 16? He started in glory. He finished in glory. He returned to where he began, and there now he rules. And from then there he will come to claim us again. So in summary of 1 Timothy 3.16, by the way, there's a half a dozen 3.16s in the New Testament, if you didn't know, besides John 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 another one you could check out, significant text. In summary of this text, the God of the universe whose being fills unthinkable heights and depths and breadths of things we can't measure and the scientists who are seeking that Higgs particle cannot penetrate, that God is not a cloaked, mysterious God. He's not a God who keeps secrets. He sent his eternally pre-existing son into this world to die a sacrificial death for others and to rise in power. He revealed this to us. He made this supreme thing known. Angels testified to it. Hundreds and thousands and millions of witnesses have said, yes, it's true for me. It changed me. And now the compelling thing is whether you will believe and you will say, great is this mystery of godliness. I had a great little visit yesterday morning, just about this time of the morning. Keith Irvin is out of town, and when he's gone, John Light and I cover, of course, for folks that need to be visited or any kind of crisis. And there was a call I knew I had to fulfill and gladly did going down to a skilled care facility where one of our members, who is 97 years old, lives. And we were saddened to hear that she'd had a bad fall just the other day. Hit her head. I thought, my goodness, 97. Could this be the end of her? I went to see how she was. I thought probably I'm not even going to be able to have a conversation, but I certainly want to minister to her any way that I can. And I found this dear lady, eyes wide open, recognized me immediately. We had a great chat, wonderful talk. She was lucid. She was clear-minded. We talked about what it would be like to celebrate your 98th Christmas. Kids, that gives you something to look forward to. Her 98th Christmas on this earth. Her name is Mildred Plum. Some of you know Mildred. Wonderful lady. It wasn't long before we were talking about heaven because Mildred thinks about heaven a lot at age 97. You would too, I believe. She thinks about the fact that she's probably not on this earth too much longer. And we talked about the Lord and and going home to him and what that would be like. And 
Christmas and all these different things together. And at one point, she just kind of stopped, and there were some tears in her eyes, but, but they were sparkling tears, you know, twinkling tears. And she stopped, and she said, Pastor, isn't Christ our Savior just wonderful? That blessed me in a tremendous way because I say, yes, Mildred, you preached for me. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. In him, this unfathomable love of God for undeserving humanity is made plain. It's revealed. It's there for those who would have eyes opened by the Spirit of God to embrace it, to take hold of it, to bow before it, to rest your future in it. And to live every hour deserving, oh, you can't deserve it, but you can try to live deserving of this great mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Thanks be to God for this great truth. Our Father, on this day, we give you praise. There is that element of awe and amazement as we consider what you did to bring Christ from illimitable space before there was even time, yet alone a planet called Earth, to bring him among us because of our need to do the things that were unthinkable to our minds, and then to tell us that we can have fellowship with you in eternity, the limitless God. We say it. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. We praise you. We trust you. We rejoice in the Savior you sent us. Amen.